You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, the International Criminal Court begins hearing South Africa's case against Israel in The Hague. With four days to go until the Iowa caucus kicks off the 2024 race properly, Republican candidates trade blows. We don't need another mealy-mouthed politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear just to try to get your vote, then to get in office and to do her donor's bidding. First the farmers and now the train drivers are bringing Germany to a standstill. Plus the latest business news and why are millions of younger Japanese men and women no longer interested in love? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. To The Hague first, where the UN's International Criminal Court has begun hearing a case brought by South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. Their submission also calls on the court to order Israel to stop military operations there. The court's rulings are theoretically legally binding on parties, which uh, include Israel and South Africa, but are not enforceable. Israel has vehemently rejected the accusations as baseless. Leila Molana-Allen is Monocle's Middle East correspondent. Leila, what's been happening in this hearing so far? So the hearing started, to be clear, this is not actually the International Criminal Court, which is much better known, but the International Court of Justice, which is part of the same system. The reason this isn't being brought under the ICC is because there isn't a jurisdictional basis for trying to enforce the Genocide Convention within the ICC, which prosecutes individual war criminals. So what this is, is a very preliminary step for countries and governments that believe that Israel is carrying out genocide to try and push that case. Now, a lot of people have been saying in recent months since the war started on the 7th of October in Israel, why have countries not invoked the Genocide Convention? Israel is a signatory to the Genocide Convention, uh, the convention created to prevent countries and governments and and, uh, militant groups carrying out genocide. And South Africa is the first state to actually do so. So what's happening now in The Hague is that outside there are many protesters standing outside the Peace Palace watching these proceedings today South Africa's team of lawyers has been laying out their evidence for why they believe that Israel is carrying out genocide. And tomorrow, Israel's team of lawyers will lay out their evidence for why they refute these claims. It will then be judged on by a group of 15 uh, judges plus an extra judge selected by South Africa and an extra judge selected by Israel. Now, what could come from this is not an overall judgment of genocide, but there are a few different factors uh, that could really affect the course of this war that people, uh, some are hoping for and some are vehemently fighting against. And why is it South Africa in particular that's decided to bring this case and what evidence have they submitted so far? So, of course, this 
entire international political, uh, humanitarian, legal system that we have as an international body was all created in the wake of the Second World War and created in the wake of the Holocaust. Much of the Genocide Convention and the way it's constructed was based on the Holocaust and the horrors that were committed then. Uh, And that really is how our world order exists now for the people who do ascribe to it. South Africa stepped up and said that they, as a country that experienced apartheid until 30 years ago, of course, this year is the 30th anniversary of the end of apartheid in Africa, has particularly started to step up in the last couple of years as several uh, international organizations, including Human Rights Watch, including Amnesty, have come out with reports saying that they have made a decree, they've found evidence that Israel is a country that imposes apartheid upon the occupied Palestinian territories. Gaza is not one of those territories anymore. Israel pulled out in 2005, but Gaza is still occupied in terms of the way that it's surrounded by Israel and Israel controls everything that goes into the country. So South Africa has really taken this on as a cause and said as a former apartheid country, we want to fight this. Now, within South Africa, I'm in South Africa at the moment speaking to people about this. There's a huge divide because there's a very large Arab expat community here, including lots of Lebanese, lots Palestinians. And there's a very large Jewish Israeli community here as well, who are hugely at odds over whether this is right. But it's what the government's decided to do. Now, thus far today, South Africa's team of lawyers have laid out with forensic uh, exact evidence the level of what they believe constitutes genocidal. And what's important here is for them to prove genocidal intent. And genocide, of course, is defined as particular acts to try and eradicate a particular group of people, in this case, Palestinians who are trapped in Gaza under this bombardment. They have laid out forensically the level of bombing that has been imposed upon Gazan civilians in the last three months, their inability to move from place to place. The fact that when they were told to move to South Gaza, then while they were on the road, refugee convoys were bombed. When they arrived in those safe places, refugee convoys were bombed. It's been very, very hard hitting, very expansive evidence that they're providing. The second thing they're also providing is the number of statements from Israeli leaders, leaders in the army, politicians, essentially advocating genocide, advocating the eradication of the Palestinian people in Gaza, which they say also amounts to genocidal intent. Many people say that, oh, these were misinterpreted, but actually they say it's a key part of their evidence. And Israel's clearly worried as a signatory to the Genocide Convention. They've tried very hard over the last few weeks since this was brought to get the the case tossed before it even reached the court, but it has reached the court now. And Israel is set to mount its defence tomorrow, we expect. What are we likely to hear from them? We're likely to hear about the level to which they have tried to avoid civilian casualties. They've said repeatedly that they issue warnings whenever they're about to bomb a place, that they try and uh, carry out precision strikes wherever they can. They talk extensively about how difficult it is to fight Hamas within Gaza Uh, because of the tunnel systems underneath Gaza, because of the way that Hamas militants use urban environments uh, to fight. But the issue here is not whether or not Israel is trying to fight Hamas, and that's their key intention. The issue is whether the incredible loss of civilian life is acceptable in their battle to fight Hamas, and also whether it's actually acceptable to continue this intense bombing campaign in a situation where people cannot leave. And of course, the reason people cannot leave is in large part because of Israel, because those borders are blocked. So whether or not 
people believe that their fight against Hamas is justified. It's about the level of humanitarian impact, because, of course, when we've now reached at least 23,000 people dead, many of those people, children at this point, one in 100 people in Gaza is dead. And many people are pointing to that figure as evidence of the intent of genocide or at the very least nonchalance towards whether or not a genocide is happening, almost genocide by neglect. So this is what Israel will try to fight against tomorrow. They will, of course, also bring a lot of evidence as to why it's necessary for them to fight and indeed why they feel that Hamas also is perpetrating these acts upon the Gazan people rather than it being Israel, which is to blame. It's going to come down essentially to whether the judges believe that what they're doing in order to try and get rid of Hamas is justified, whether this number of people is justified to continue these actions with this number of people having been killed, whether the weaponry they're using, which is a very intensive, they're one of the highest uh, supplied, best militarized armies in the world, of course, supplied by America, whether it's reasonable to be using these kind of weapons within such tightly packed urban spaces where people have nowhere to go. And just to be very clear, this judgment that comes out of this will not be whether or not genocide is happening. It will not be whether or not Israel has to stop. There are particular things that South Africa is looking for, one of which would be huge pressure to stop the current military campaign because of the conditions it's imposing upon Gazans and the level of death it's creating. Secondly, to look for some sort of ruling on the fact that Israeli politicians, political figures, military figures cannot continue to issue statements which sound like they have genocidal intent and which dehumanize Palestinian lives. And thirdly, very importantly, if they do get any form of judgment against Israel, what could then happen is that then opens up the possibility of prosecuting individual people within the Israeli army, within the Israeli government, in both the International Criminal Court and in regional courts as well. So that's what they're pushing for. It's almost opening the gate into further war crimes prosecutions rather than any particular big judgment from this exact case. And finally, just briefly, outside there have been large demonstrations by both Israeli and Palestinian supporters. There have. People are very people on the side that supports what uh, you know against what's happening to Palestinians, so pro-Palestinian protesters, feel that for the first time in history, the Israeli army, right-wing Israeli governments are being held to account for their treatment of Palestinians on the international stage, and they feel this is a historic day. Whether or not it goes forward, the fact that actually you know, Israeli officials are being brought to account in an international court of law is vitally important. So they're there to offer their support as much as anything else. They want people to get there's lots of complaints happening about the fact that this really isn't being covered at the level that you would expect in international media. And many people making accusations that's because people are bowing to certain Israeli lobbies about this. It certainly isn't getting the kind of attention you would expect for such an enormous, potentially game changing case. And on the other hand, many Israelis who feel and, and, and Jewish diaspora around the world have gathered who feel that this is an existential fight against a terrorist group that killed more than 1,200 people in one day in their homes, in their military barracks. They can never allow this to happen again. And they feel they're not getting the support that they want from the international community. And they don't understand, they say, why people wouldn't understand that they have to do whatever they need to do to get rid of Hamas. So it's a very personal, very charged atmosphere, both outside The Hague and around the world, as these Hmm. fights take place within every community across the globe that has a mixture of people within it. Leila Molana Allen, thank you very much. Now here's Carlos Rebello with the day's other news headlines.
Thanks, Vincent. Papua New Guinea has declared a state of emergency after at least 15 people were killed during rioting in the Pacific Island country. The violence began as a protest by police and public sector workers over pay. Prime Minister James Marape said more than 1,000 troops are now on standby. Local authorities in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv say Russian missiles struck a hotel, injuring 11 people. The attack comes after Russia ramped up its aerial bombardment of Ukraine, including on the capital, Kyiv. And Oppenheimer and Barbie lead the nominations for the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Both blockbusters are tipped for four prizes, including outstanding performance by a cast. American Fiction and Killers of the Flower Moon both picked up three nominations. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Carlotta. Republican presidential candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley squared off in a tense debate last night, trading barbs just days before the Iowa caucus. A few hours earlier, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race. He was running on a vehemently anti-Trump ticket and promised to continue working to ensure the former president never returns to office. Washington reporter Simon Marks is down the line to tell us more. Simon, how did the debate go between Haley and DeSantis? Well, Vincent, it was like so many of the other debates that we've already seen. Very, very scrappy, even though there were only two candidates uh, on the stage. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, and Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida. Their disdain for one another was on open display. Uh, They talked over one another constantly. Uh, Jake Tapper, the moderator of the debate for CNN, struggled at times to keep them focused on giving each other time and space to answer of the questions that were being asked Uh, and in many regards the winner of the debate was the man who wasn't there, Donald Trump. His campaign believes that while uh, Haley and DeSantis were showing the public that they are sparring with one another uh, Donald Trump was taking the moral high ground, appearing uh, uh, in a uh, televised town hall on Fox News on another channel surrounded by supporters. At one point uh, the CNN uh, debate uh, went to a commercial break and there was a Donald Trump advertisement uh, that aired in which Donald Trump was taking on Joe Biden as opposed to taking on the uh, rival Republicans who were trying uh, to dethrone him. Uh, Nikki Haley uh, accused Ron DeSantis of frittering away millions of dollars in campaign funding uh, on private jets. She said if he couldn't be trusted to spend his supporters' cash, he certainly couldn't be trusted uh, with the country's money either. Uh, And at one point, uh, Nikki Haley accused Ron DeSantis of lying constantly uh, about her record and also uh, about his own record. And she relentlessly promoted uh, a new website that her campaign has launched, she says, to reveal Ron DeSantis's lies. Take a listen. You're going to find out tonight that there's going to be a lot of Ron's lies that have happened. There are at least a couple of dozen so far that he's done. So what we're going to do is rather than have him go and tell you all these lies, you can go to DeSantisLies.com and look at all of those. There's at least two dozen lies that he's told about me. And you can see where fact checkers say exactly what's going to happen and exactly why it's wrong. Now, on foreign policy, Ron DeSantis raised eyebrows by seemingly stepping away from the long-held two-state solution. 
Yes, very much so. He, of course, uh, attacks Nikki Haley as being a globalist. Uh, he said you could take the United Nations, uh, you could take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but you couldn't take the United Nations out of the ambassador. That a reference to her time as Donald Trump's uh, representative at UN headquarters. Uh, the CNN moderator, though, uh, challenged uh, Ron DeSantis. He said that Nikki Haley had last week publicly opposed any plan that Israel may have uh, to depopulate Gaza, and he challenged Ron DeSantis to do the same. Do you support the mass removal of Palestinians from Gaza? So as president, I am not going to tell them to do that. I think there's a lot of issues with that. But if they make the calculation that to avert a second Holocaust, they need to do that. I think some of these Palestinian Arabs, Saudi Arabia should take Thank some. You. Egypt should take some. They've never been willing to accept any of these folks you, in their own neighborhood. Quite a statement from the Florida governor there. Another governor, though, former governor, Chris Christie, has finally dropped out. Will his supporters, and granted, there's not a huge number of them, now fall behind DeSantis or behind Haley? I think it's very unclear, Vincent, and it was notable that even on uh, the day that he dropped out, Chris Christie did not offer an endorsement to either Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. Indeed, in uh, off-mic comments that were captured by a microphone, possibly deliberately, uh, Chris Christie uh, insisted uh, that he didn't uh, think that either of them was uh, fit to be president. He said that Ron DeSantis had called him when he learnt that Chris Christie was uh, dropping out of the campaign and he described Ron DeSantis as petrified about the future of his own campaign and Nikki Haley he predicted in his words is going to get smoked he said we all know that uh, and that was a reference to uh, her fate undoubtedly next week in the Iowa caucuses she's essentially conceded that uh, Donald Trump is going to win in Iowa uh, next week she's keeping her powder dry uh, hoping to stage a come from behind victory in New Hampshire in two weeks that then upends Donald Trump's campaign. But in order to do that, she's going to have to attract uh, some of those Chris Christie uh, supporters who will now be shopping around for another candidate. And even if she brings all of them across the transom, it's far from clear that that will necessarily prevent Donald Trump from winning uh, in New Hampshire. The Trump campaign remains supremely confident. They believe that their man is now between eight and ten weeks away from e effectively getting his grip on the Republican nomination, which will set the stage for a very long presidential campaign uh, that could see uh, Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden essentially slugging it out for as long as eight months. And slugging it out in the courtrooms as well for Donald Trump, of course. Simon Marks, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To Germany now, where after days of disruption due to countrywide protests by farmers, a three-day rail strike is causing more travel delays. Sudar David Wilp is director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office. Thank you for joining us. So why are these German train drivers going on strike now and how common is industrial action on the railways there? Uh, thank you, Vincent, for having me. So this is turning into a season of protest and economic discontent in Germany. Uh, I think people thought it was going to happen a bit earlier after the war uh, against Ukraine started in 2022. Rising prices um, and um, lack of skilled workers have really put the uh, German economy into a tailspin. 
And this is not the first time the railway workers are striking. This has not been an ongoing discussion. They want more money, and now they're asking for um, working less each week but maintaining their current salaries. And what level of disruption has all this caused? Well, it's certainly been uh, very disruptive for Germany. I mean, they did warn before the holidays that the strike was going to take place this week, but um, the German railways are only running at 80% of capacity. So you can imagine uh, people going back into work life after the holidays have to rearrange business trips, schools and um, other things have to also, um, people have to make alternative plans to get to where they need to go to. And Germany is often dubbed the sort of engine of uh, the European Union. It's the biggest economy on the continent. Um, Why are these problems all coming to the fore now in the economy, which seems to be falling uh, into recession? And and what's it doing to Schultz's coalition? Well, I think, um, you know, Germany has been used to record growth and being sort of the export muscle behind the European Union during the tenure of Angela Merkel. And when Chancellor Schultz came into office, uh, you know, they thought that that can continue, but obviously the war against Ukraine and other geopolitical realities have um, made people understand here that this economy needs to transform. A massive investment is needed to spur the German economy. Um, Structural changes when it's either energy transition, digital investment, or even investing in traditional things like roads and bridges. Um, But this also coupled with a lack of workers um, and the very important debt break in the German constitution is sort of um, holding Germany back in terms of making those important investments. And so Germany is looking at um, low growth compared to its G7 peers. And in terms of the opposition, particularly the alternative for Deutschland, how are they capitalizing on all this? Uh, The AFD is definitely uh, capitalizing on the low favorability um, ratings of the current traffic light government in Berlin under Chancellor Schultz. Um, They are even sometimes trying to infiltrate, you know, the farmers are also protesting this week because the government is trying to trim the budget after realizing the plan that they had had to be rolled back since it would over, um, it would exceed the debt break. And so um, farmers are also now protesting about not getting sort of the funding that they had planned for this year. And so the AFD is also even trying to sort of take part in some of these protests And um, yeah, they are performing very strongly, over 20% Germany-wide. And there are three crucial state elections in the former East where they are on top of all the mainstream parties right now in the polls. So David Wilt in Berlin, thank you very much. Well, let's get the day's business headlines now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts from Dubai. Ewan, Bitcoin is in the news. It seems the US regulator has given up its fight. Yeah, US regulators have for the first time approved exchange-traded funds that invest directly in Bitcoin. Now, many of the biggest names in finance are already lining up to offer these products. This is really quite a big deal in the cryptocurrency world. And the approval is really something of a, a rare capitulation by the SEC. Their opposition has lasted more than 10 years over this. And the uh, chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, has been repeatedly outspoken about the risks 
uh, of uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and he was uh, not exactly uh, warm about them in his words at the approval. He says, whilst we've approved the listing and trading of certain spot Bitcoin ETF shares today, we did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Uh, he's actually come out with uh, much stronger statements uh, over the years about this. Uh, they're really not keen on these products, but they've uh, partly been pushed into this by uh, a court ruling, a court appeal by BlackRock, the world's biggest fund manager. Uh, that called the denial of a different application they made before, uh, arbitrary and capricious. So the US regulator, they're not the first regulator in the world to back these products. But of course, the US is the biggest economy in the world uh, and is the most important market for uh, investors. Um, the decision comes a day after that rather embarrassing false post on the SEC's uh, X account, which claimed that the agency had already approved the ETFs. That didn't happen uh, until uh, yesterday. But uh, investors have been expecting this. So, of course, the savvy investors have uh, bought the news and uh, sold uh, sold the actual event itself. Uh, cryptocurrency Bitcoin has been on uh, a massive roller coaster, as you won't be surprised to hear the price is incredibly volatile. It's been having a, a very good uh, run of late, but being able to invest in spot Bitcoin uh, is sure to be a boost to the cryptocurrency. Whether the price action has already taken place uh, is another matter. I hesitate to give you a price on Bitcoin as it moves so quickly. Anybody listening to this uh, tomorrow uh, will get out of date information. But currently $47,000 and it is up on the day, up uh, up $1,000. Still about $20,000 below its record high, though, of about uh, 18 months or so. Uh, but what does this mean for US concerns and regulator concerns, particularly about Bitcoin being used for criminality, for uh, money laundering, for tax evasion, all those things? Yeah, well, we've had warnings from Gary Gensler before about this sort of thing. Uh, he's not happy that it is uh, used by criminals. Of course, it's uh, very difficult to trace Bitcoin. That's one of the key points of it. Uh, these ETF products, though, will be investment devices. So uh, it seems unlikely that anybody's going to use an ETF uh, to launder their ill-gotten gains. Much better just to buy cryptocurrency on a normal exchange. And of course, it is pretty untraceable uh, done in the right way. But these ETFs uh, will bring it into the mainstream, if you like. So they're less likely to be used by criminals and more likely to be used by investors. Whether it's a good place to park your money is another matter, though, because as you say, it is incredibly volatile. And it's certainly not a one-way bet. Uh, anybody who was buying Bitcoin a couple of years ago when it was uh, there was so much hype around it, we were talking about it uh, so often, uh, and then held it through to last year, would have been sitting on massive, massive losses. And remember, of course, that Bitcoin is just the biggest and most stable of the cryptocurrencies. Some of the smaller ones, well, that really is uh, really is the wild west. Mm. And uh, shipping stocks have been on the rise despite the disruption continuing in the Red Sea. Yeah, I'm here in Dubai at the moment. I'm just helping out our Middle East team in the Bloomberg office for a couple of months. I want to bring you a story from over here, which is uh, affecting things back where you are in London. Tesco gave their results uh, today, a pretty good Christmas sales from the UK uh, retailer. But they did warn there was a warning on the call with the chief executive today for investors about disruption to the Red Sea. Now, of course, we know about the attacks by uh, Yemeni-based Houthi rebels uh, on commercial vessels going uh, through the Red Sea. And that is having a dramatic effect on shipping rates. Now, the boss of shipping giant Maersk, the Danish shipping giant, has been speaking to the Financial Times. He says it could take months to reopen uh, the Red Sea trading route. Uh, and he says that risks an economic and inflationary hit to the global economy uh, and to companies uh, and to consumers. He says it's unclear if we're talking about establishing safe passage through the Red Sea in a matter of days, 
weeks or months. So it seems that they just don't know. Shipping volumes through the Red Sea are down about 65% uh, on this time last year. So some uh, shipping is continuing, Mm. but many of the shipping giants have chosen to avoid it. And shipping rates have gone through the roof. That's pretty good news for the likes of Maersk, but it's not good news for inflation in the West. Ewan Potts, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, to Japan now, where a new survey of 1,200 singletons aged between 20 and 49 found a record 34% have never been in a romantic relationship. A quarter say they have no intention to wed, while 19% of women and 23% of men said dating was a waste of time and money. Tim Horniash is a Tokyo-based author and journalist covering Japanese technology, business and culture. Um, Tim, what do you make of these survey results? Are they a surprise? Well, they're a surprise in a sense that they are now at a record high uh, ratio of people who uh, don't want to and have not had a romantic relationship. But uh, this is a trend that's been going on for a long, long time. It can be traced back decades. And... um, the the problem is that as more and more people decide that uh, dating is not for them, it just creates a greater strain potentially on the uh, demographic situation here in Japan with a shrinking population. And I want to turn to the demographics, but just first, what do you think the origins are of this growing number of people that just aren't interested in relationships? It's a really complex picture. It's related to... Um, in the 1990s when Japan had a uh, bubble economy, uh, the 80s and 90s, and it, it, this bubble burst and uh, the economy slid into this stagnant period of several decades, uh, that ruined job tro- prospects for young men and uh, it, it became a, a big, enormous you know, economic burden in terms of being able to financially support a spouse like in, in the old days of uh, traditional Japanese marriages and, and that sort of thing. So there's that. There's also uh, now Japan has the specter of inflation, as in many countries. For a long time, there was deflation here. So inflation is something new. And I think also, you know, new ways of meeting people, new ways, new ways of interacting with people through social media uh, and uh, dating apps and that sort of thing is also uh, playing a role here. I think it seems to me that being here in, in Tokyo, you find less, fewer and fewer people who are meeting via face-to-face encounters. Uh, there used to be a popular trend called Gokon in which. Uh, a group of singles like five men, five women, for example, would get together and, and they would do a sort of mix and match. And maybe, uh, you know, some of the couples in that group would uh, would hit it off or or form couples rather. Uh, that, I think, has been replaced to some extent by these apps and they're not as successful. And so there are more and more single people here, more and more frustrated people here. And uh, they're just getting fed up with the whole scene and they want to stay single. Japan's declining marriage rate is blamed as the main reason for its low birth rate. How much of a demographic crisis is this creating for the nation? It's absolutely a crisis if you're a country that wants to maintain a, a population at a certain level and does not rely on immigration, like this in the situation here in Japan. The um, population has been declining for more than 10 years and um, the roughly 124 million people here are expected to drop down to 80 or even fewer million uh, in in the next few decades. So um, 
the the country doesn't have too many options really if it doesn't want to open its doors to mass immigration uh, uh the the solution is to try to encourage japanese to have more children but this is a problem that uh doesn't seem to be going away in fact it's it's getting worse i know one fellow uh who's in his 40s and he's not one of these so-called parasite singles this sort of pejorative term that they apply to people who single people who live with their parents he's not one of those he's got a job in his own place to live but he had a few uh, bad relationships and uh, he's single and now he's just not interested at all in dating. He just wants to do his job and his leisure activities and that's it. Yeah, it's hard to legislate or make policies uh, for people's hearts, isn't it? But just turning to another story with you that has captured not only the British media and Parliament's attention this week, but also news outlets around the world, the post office scandal, the maker of the Faulty Horizon software, which generated false accounts, leading to hundreds of uh, false uh, criminal charges being brought and imprisonment, suicides, absolute destruction of people's lives. The software was made by Fujitsu, one of Japan's most famous companies. Has there been much reaction to this story in Japan? I think people here in Japan are just waking up to this story, uh, partly perhaps because of this Toby Jones uh, series that's come out there. Um, this was really not on the radar screen, but um, they are you know, reporting it as, as it's being played out there. Um, now, to my mind, this is not so surprising because... There are a number of large Japanese IT vendors that have been producing legacy systems for institutions, not unlike the post office over there. Uh, and these legacy systems uh, can sometimes cause massive problems. Uh, we've seen it in the financial sector here where one of the large Japanese banks has had repeated problems with uh, its its ATM services, like over a dozen times the in one year the ATM services have stopped. So um, there's a there's a problem with this sort of um, cartel of large IT vendors that produce these systems. They don't face a lot of competition, and uh, the the product the result is that they can have a lot of um, you know glitches and uh, it could lead to disaster like this we've seen at the post office system over there Tim Horniash thank you you're listening to the briefing on Monocle radio and that's all for this edition of the briefing it was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Carlotta Rebello our studio manager was Steph Chungu the briefing is back tomorrow at the same time with me Vincent McAvinney goodbye and thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs> 